welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from 360 Learning, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with John Tomlinson, Head of Learning and Development at the UK Foreign Office and host of the Trainer Tools Podcast. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us, and thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. John, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you. Hello. Nice to be on. Um, <laughs> John, um, we've both been in learning and development uh, uh, for, for quite some time, so it'd probably be a good start uh, to give us an overview of your L&D career to date. Well, it's a bit of an odd kink journey, really, with, with various sort of kinks in it. It's, not, uh, it's, never, it's unplanned and... Um, not quite random, but I think it was a slightly accidental start. Like I think a lot of people do get into L&D a bit accidentally. I just mm. finished uni, wanted to carry on living like a student, wanted to avoid a proper job, wanted to travel. So I went abroad and just got a job as a teaching English. And this was lucky. This was in the days when your only qualification was a passport and that was enough and you could mm. get a job as a native speaker. Even though I was from Yorkshire and could couldn't pronounce various words in acceptable ways to the foreign ear. Uh, mm. So despite that, I uh, managed to survive for about three years overseas teaching English. So that was my first mm. way of getting into something that you describe as education. Mm. Um, and there was a point when I was arguing with a five-year-old about how to pronounce cup, as in C-U-P, which I would say cup. And I'm sitting there having this stand-up argument with this five-year-old pointing a finger in his face. And he's going, it's cap. <laughs> that I thought, I think I might have to tone down the accent a bit here if I want to survive. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I did that for a few years in those days when it was quite easy to do. And just mm. by fluke, I guess, I met various people who ended up getting proper jobs subsequently, one of whom got a proper job in an airline called Virgin Atlantic. And he he was working on a project and he needed a trainer and a technical author. So I got an interview, got the job, stayed there for about 10 years, progressed up to training manager. I then relocated to Spain. And after a while of kind of commuting and trying to do some uh, various things, uh, freelance, I, mm. was, I, I fell on my feet and got a job with the British government in learning and development. And then a couple of years later, was was um, got to be the head of the team that covers L and D across um, the the territory of Europe and and Central Asia. So and that's where I am now. Mm. And I, I I do have a couple of other responsibilities, such as leading on management development programs and and our evaluation, mm. uh, learning evaluation, sort of extras that I've picked up along the way. Was that brief enough? I always think, that was that I always was very brief, John. So, uh, so you just think like, yeah, whatever. You know, but I hope that was brief <laughs> and succinct. It was very succinct, but uh, but you're going to have to forgive me for wanting to go a little deeper, especially on your current role. I'd love to know. Um, right. uh, I mean, it's intriguing. You say you work for the uh, British government, so it'd be wonderful to know what your your current role involves. Well, we um, my current role involves working in a team of people that covers um, all learning and development needs for British government employees overseas. Uh, in mm. as I said, in, in Europe and Central Asia, most of that is done remotely, of course, um, and then leading across the whole network on development of management development, 
type products, whatever they may be, always with an international mm. focus, because otherwise it's why would you develop it? There's enough stuff out there. So just trying to give us that cultural intelligence piece in the way that we manage and lead people. And as I said, the, the other piece that I really do and also um, have some influence across government on is around learning evaluation. That's a big part mm -hmm. of what I do and, and I've been doing for quite a few years now. And and as I mentioned uh, in the intro, John, we both entered L&D at a similar time, late 90s, uh, and a lot has changed since then. Um, but what do you still lean on from those early days and what seems less relevant today? Well, I think, I mean, what, I mean, L&D is one of those industries, it's full of people that are obviously quite intrigued with learning, obviously. Mm. That's, that's one of the reasons you go into it. So yeah. we tend to be an industry that moves pretty fast and sometimes too fast. And that we're mm. sometimes guilty of throwing babies out with bathwater or trying to move on from things and calling them old hat when actually they're not. And mm. I'm guilty of having done that as well. And now sort of reflecting back, you actually think some of the things I was doing in those very early days were actually fine. They were right. Because mm. it's a people business. It's still a people business. People are still yeah. people. And I think that when I got it right in those early days, it was that. It was when I was having conversations, when I was when I wasn't the one dominating the space as the trainer at the front of the room in, in teacher mode, it was when mm. I was connecting with people as people and not overthinking the psychology angle. Cause it's not mm. that we're not psychologists, not necessarily anyway. Yeah. I know there's some crossover. So I think it was, it was when I was just getting those things right, that are still the mm. things that when I facilitate learning, which I do as much as I can, unfortunately less than I used to, Mm. it's leaning on those people connection things it's leaning on my own yeah. curiosity so i think those are the things which are most constant and i would say more or less yeah. everything else has changed like i mean i'd love to to uh to explore that some more because uh because the way even the words you use uh, remind me of my time <laughs> especially when i was at disney um see i i um i I, similar to you, I, I fell into learning and development. I certainly didn't study it uh, at uh, a college or university, not till much later. And when I did uh, um, finally do my degree in HR management, I wasn't being taught anything I didn't know, uh, simply from practice, from actually doing that. But what I think um, uh, did help me to be successful is that I did want to get to, when, when I was happy and I was at Disney and, uh, and I realized that, uh, that this was a good fit all round, I thought doing a good job was pressing stakeholders um, beyond their requests for, for training. I like, didn't want to leave the room um, and then go and procure something that I didn't think would work. So professional pride took over and there, there was uh, a little bit of smart questioning, a lot of pride involved. There was certainly knowing the market, but also um, having that dose of realism that perhaps what was being asked for wasn't wasn't going to get them the results um, and all of that was learned by hook or by crook a lot of the time and sometimes I listen to podcasts and there were some really smart people about talking about the history of learning theory and I think I mean it's 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 all great to know it's really it's really interesting to know now um, but I'm not sure to what extent that would have helped me in-house when I became really adept at getting the right stuff done at Disney and getting a reputation for that. I mean, to what extent 
does that does that match what you're saying, John, or are you much more of a, an academic uh, and a theoretical learning and development professional or leader who then applied that, or, uh, or or how did you refine your skills? Oh, de- well, definitely not the latter. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I was very much feeling my way. I mean, in those really early days, I I, I enjoyed the I enjoyed the the process of education. You know, for Ooh. me, it's a, it's a it's genuinely a glamour industry. It really is for yeah. me. And I, I find it exciting. I find university environments genuinely exciting. And mm. so I, and, and I love explaining stuff to people. So the idea of being able to go into a classroom and help people learn English, which is what I was doing in the early days, mm. although I wasn't particularly interested in the subject, if I'm honest, I did really enjoy those conversations. I did enjoy that. I wasn't doing the kind of higher level consultancy stuff you're talking about where you're actually mm. defining the needs and stuff. I wasn't doing that until much later, but that yeah. doesn't quite match. I mean, I, I only really think I got into that. I don't know, probably, I, I don't know now. Um, I'm going to leave awkward dead air while I think about this when I got into that. Sorry, <laughs> That's but that was, that was much later. So mm. I didn't have that in the early days. In the early days, it was just, you, you have to do the training that fits with this new project. What, what, yeah. So once it got to Virgin, this is here's a new project, here's a new IT system or whatever, here's a new process. You need to do the training around it. So it was mm. very much linked to the objectives of the project. So it wasn't in the same way you're saying. But I think mm. it what you're talking about there, where people might ask you for something and you kind of know that's not what they need, or you at least mm. want to check and you want to go through those smart questions. Mm-hmm. I think that the we are guilty as well sometimes of kind of adopting a, a pseudo professional approach to certain things and doing things like mm. learning needs analyses or, you know, applying things like learning styles and learning cycles and these kind of things, which aren't really all as robust as they might first appear. Yeah. And some of them I might be tempted to describe as complete crap. And I've seen yeah. something, I've seen like some like, you go, oh, I'll do a learning needs analysis. I'll do an LNA. Not a training needs analysis, a learning needs analysis. Mm-hmm. But the outcome is still a list of training courses. And essentially yeah. all you've done is you've you've put your net in the pond and you've come out of a load of training once. You haven't mm. really drilled down and say, what are the real skills and behaviors that are the difference between, you know, normal performance and, and really high performance? What are those mm. high performers doing? What are the skills they're leaning on? What are the behaviors? What are the what knowledge do they need? Have you really gone yeah. through all of that and unpicked it? Not usually. It's really mm-hmm. just a list of training wants in a, you know, structured in a document or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think we we certainly used to rely a lot a lot on those kind of quite shallow pseudo-professional tools that made it look like <clears throat> we were doing something more scientific than we were. And yeah. I think that's something that I've been very conscious of trying to move away from, but mm. not, and again, I, I'm, I'm guilty of doing this as well, but not, not just trying to chuck stuff out because it's out of fashion, you know, mm. trying to do that in a way that's discerning. Joe, you're going to be the only, you're not going to be the only one, uh, uh, John. I mean, they, uh, uh, learning styles is, uh, is, is, quite obviously debunked um now and there's a lot of chatter people people You'd jump on so. somebody You'd on linkedin so. i'm in the yeah. middle of doing a coaching qualification and that features in the middle of it learning styles 
Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, that uh, there's a LinkedIn course that uh, that includes it as well. Um, so yeah, yeah. So uh, so that nonsense is uh, uh, still um, uh, it's still very much in the ether, um, despite uh, all of that. But uh, but I suppose that comes to uh, an interesting question because again, you know, you're a seasoned learning and development leader. Uh, we've seen stuff um, come into fashion. We're taught in a certain way. There was a certain point when uh, uh, I'd say that in the in the 90s and early 2000s, pretty much every course I went on taught me about the learning cycle, like whether that was a communication skills course or, you know, uh, a learning, a, a leadership uh, or management training course. Uh, we really did want to tell the world about you know how how smart we were with our <laughs> with our pseudoscience um but i wonder uh, how uh, how you keep your uh, your um your radar attuned to to what is still relevant in the profession as i said you know the first first 5 or 10 years of uh, of the maybe first 5 years of the time that we were in learning and development there was a lot of stuff perpetuated but uh, but now i think that uh, that in the age of social media when stuff we've got so much access to information uh, to see whether something um, like that psychological profile is actually rigorously tested or whether we've, we've, we, you know, we're buying into some kind of Ponzi scheme. Um, to what extent, how do you uh, keep your, uh, um, your, yourself attuned to what's, what's relevant or not? Well, mainly through conversations with people, because that would be my mm. preferred style. I mean, obviously I do read, I do listen to podcasts and things like that. Mm -hmm there's loads of stuff on youtube there's loads of very easy access things like that but again you know how do you know who knows what they're talking about so mm -hmm. i i tend to just have lots of conversations because it's a subject i'm still really interested in even after many years like this conversation you yeah. know or conversations I with people at work we have them all the time We're, and a benefit as well of, uh, of hosting your well, own podcast that's the as reason well I host my own podcast, so i can force people <laughs> to have conversations with me but uh, we do this at work, though. I mean, we we, you know, we're fully aware that we're kind of living in an L and D village between us. Mm. But we'll we'll talk for hours about this stuff, and really get into it. And we've got, you know, we've got into the habit of trying to follow our own best practice, and not mm. being ashamed or embarrassed about doing that. So it's perfectly yeah. okay after a session to have a, a lessons learned chat, and do that in a mm. non self conscious, genuinely constructive way and hmm. really kind of bounce ideas off each other about what we could have done be def different better uh, and thinking through taking a step back and think you know how could we how could we help these people have different experiences which will help them learn and help them improve their performance or so hmm. it's just having those conversations in my in my case i'm not saying that's right for everyone yeah. but that's just how i prefer it and in your organisation, John, what uh, what tools and approaches do you lean on most heavily? Whether that is the, you know they're long established or whether they've evolved in uh, in recent times, say in the uh, the consulting uh, analysis design uh, development of solutions, and you mentioned evaluation, it'd be helpful to uh, to know what uh, what you lean on. Well, that that's a, a big question. Um, <laughs> the entire <laughs> whatever the entire world of LD, what what tools do you lean on? Um, well, I mean, I'm not so involved in the design. Um, we do mm. have a design team, um, and obviously we do procure a lot of design or we use a lot of um, established content already. So I'm not necessarily mm -hmm. as involved in the design uh, side of things. Mm -hmm. In terms of, um, we, we do have a business partnering approach so that similar to what you were just saying, it is really just about asking those good questions 
So we have mm. we have an, uh, an in-house model that we've developed, which is just a simplified way of structuring the kind of questions and the kind of conversations that we would hope to be having with our internal clients. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to delivery, uh, like many people, we try and structure things into blended programs. You know, we talk a lot about 70-20-10, but I think that's now become a, a useful shorthand that our customers understand as well, and they feel it's their responsibility that mm. you've got to learn, not just in that 10% formal learning space, you've actually got to think about other activities. So that's that's really landed with our client base. Therefore, it mm. is a very useful tool, might be too grand a word, but it is a useful way of getting that point across. That You've got to think blended mm. journeys over time, programs, multiple activities, and the majority of that has to be self-driven. Mm. So we would, you know, we take those kind of approaches um, you're going to say something yeah no i was going to i was going to um, ask about evaluation seeing oh, right. as it's uh it's your specialism yeah well i mean we again we developed an in-house evaluation system which mm -hmm. uh, which isn't particularly complicated you know intellectually it's just structured around at, at the lowest level it's structured around what are the objectives that the learning sets out to achieve and then mm. testing those sometimes testing before and after sometimes testing with 360 feedback sometimes just self-analysis but just looking at what were we, what were we trying to achieve with this learning and development activity, and then did we achieve it at the end? And sometimes we might check several months later as well to see how sustained mm. that might be, and depending on the size of the investment, how much effort we'll go to in terms of that. Mm. But essentially, it's it's structured around that, but it 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 depends on uh, some of our larger leadership programs are i suppose generic because they're on offer to wider groups of people all of whom have their own objectives for attending so mm. in something like that you it's harder to look at the impact because you're mm. going to have so many different impacts all over the place it's actually quite hard to do so that's where we structure it around what what we what we are like capability statements which we can test before, including the, as I said, the, the feedback from multiple people around them, the 360 afterwards, and then sometime later. And that's proven to be quite good because it's looking at behaviors from the perspective of, I suppose you call them the customers of the behavior, the, the recipients of the mm -hmm. behavior. But if you're working with a, a, a closed group, which we sometimes do, whereas we might go to a single team or, or similar shaped and sized thing. And if we can really nail the objectives down at the beginning and uh, what you know, an example might be uh, one team wants to build better relationships with mm. let's say Audi, the car provider in Germany, let's say the trade team needs to build better relationships with this big provider. You can nail down some really context in context really specific objectives about what will that look like what does that mean you know you ask these mm. good questions now what happens now what would you like to happen what's the and really understand the gaps and then you can really start to measure that because it's absolutely mm. you, you've defined it so well and it isn't lengthy because you've got it so tightly in context and you generalize the learning it's not like if you mm. do if you achieve this it's not like you won't know how to do it in another context of course you will you can generalize that learning, but you really nail it down to that tight, tight context. And then you can measure it because you, because you, 
the first thing you said, the first thing we said when we started talking about it was, why do you think that's important? What would you like to see? Mm. What happens now? So you've already got a what you want it to look like and what it looks like now. Mm. You've already got that defined. You know, what's yeah. your evidence? Why do you think it's not working? So you've got evidence. So you've got mm. your measures, but you can only do that if you've got something that's that tightly focused on us where you're all kind of pushing in the same direction. Yeah. You can't do that if you just do a, a general networking course when everyone goes off and yeah. applies it in entirely different contexts. Mm. so i don't think there's one single answer and i think one of the problems yeah. with evaluation is that all these evaluation models none of which are bad or wrong but they all imply that there's one way of doing things mm. you know oh kurt patrick we're trying to get to level four we've never achieved it well no one nobody has so maybe the model's <laughs> wrong <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> the reason the reason you haven't is because you can't do it for general stuff you can only do mm. it when it's tightly in context and there's no one way of doing it. Yeah. There'll be lots of different ways of doing it. And there'll become a point where you just kind of go, do you know what? It's not worth it because we've only mm. spent 10 grand on this. I'm not going to spend 30 grand trying to measure its effectiveness. Yeah, that's a smart way of doing it. It's uh, reminiscent of uh, conversations I've had with Kevin M. Yates on the uh, on the podcast. Uh, he's oh, he's, the been, on mine as well. detective. he's been on mine as well. Oh, yeah, is he? Great, Kevin. <laughs> Say hi if you see him. Yeah. yeah, no, I will, I will. Um, but uh, but yeah, he takes the detective approach, doesn't yeah. he? He's looking for clues and evidence. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but again, I've, we've had, he and I have had conversations about if you're if you're um, uh, addressing a defined problem at the outset, then that's that's easier uh, than than perhaps if you're running a, a curriculum uh, and then you're looking for uh, for um, um, breadcrumb breadcrumbs back to the to the workplace to see whether that's actually made a difference you've got to look and you've got to think that uh, that they serve different purposes uh, but i think uh, but i like what uh, you've just mentioned there if you've not spent a lot of money on uh, on this uh, and perhaps the need at the outset wasn't wasn't wholly defined then then yeah you wouldn't you don't want to spend an inordinate right. amount of time uh, trying to trying to look for evidence i think as well if you um what were you saying there? You were saying um, about what Kevin was saying about the crumb. Yeah, the evidence point. Mm. I think if you have good conversations up front, and you know everyone says this, start with the end in mind thing, and which mm. of course is great advice. But if you're having those really good conversations up front, you know, I sometimes hear it saying things like, "We've got a management problem," mm. and immediately I've got a solution because I've done. I could deliver a management training program without. I could do it now. Without any preparation, I could deliver a management. Test. I've done it so many times, mm. and it's tempting to do that because I know I'll yeah. get good results, all of that. But if you pause and you have that conversation, you know, wh why do you think you've got a management problem? What are you seeing? Mm. Tell me, what were you seeing that makes you think you've got a management problem? Yeah. And, they, and you know, maybe they've got some kind of like staff survey results. Maybe they've got they, they've got a book of complaints or some various way of hearing complaints maybe they've just i don't know experienced it themselves i don't know but you could pull together various things that make them think that they've got this what is it what are you actually seeing tell me yeah articulate it and that's a really challenging question hmm. and if you can get maybe they go i don't know really i just kind of got a feeling well that's no good yeah <laughs> that's no good sorry mate you know you gotta yeah. have more than a feeling that's <laughs> gonna break into mm. song now wasn't it 
Yeah. (laughs) You know, you've got to be able to say what it is that's making you think this. Otherwise, it's not real. It's and and with help, with skill, you know, with Mm. constructive questioning, you can you can start to harden those things up and they will tell you. Yeah. And that's your measure. That is your measure. Whatever those things are that they're seeing, let's just keep Mm. it simple. Let's just say it's a list of complaints. Okay, what's your measure? Well, fewer complaints. That's right. There yeah. you go. You've got a measure. That's it. But you've got to have had that yeah, conversation t- up front to really sh- be mm. absolutely sure that's the evidence. That's the reason you think there's a problem. Yeah, that's right. So, so you're you're taking the uh, the request for an intervention and just exploring with them what's what's the consequence of uh, of the 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 need that they're that they're seeing there and uh, and by understanding that consequence you can get really get down into those specifics it reminds me of a conversation i had once when uh, an entire uh, i was it was it was for a, for a smaller company uh, the request came to me that uh, that we need to find a provider who's going to do time management training for the whole company and you know when you think oh wait a minute this this sounds like an absolute that reeks of crap uh, doesn't um, it straight off yeah, it does it really does and uh, and through not many questions at all we real uh, we got down to uh, two front of house uh, people mm-hmm. i think that they uh, they were on the uh, on the reception uh, were struggling with the demands of the the stuff that they needed to, uh, urgently react to and projects that they were running and it was for two people and but but do you know what I mean, sometimes you just got to give stakeholders some um uh, some slack here that that they're 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 really busy people they've got enormous amount on their plate and sometimes they just need something fixed and that's where we got to look at our role and i had this brilliant conversation with uh, Anne-Marie Burbage who was uh, uh, head of learning and development at Utility Warehouse when uh, when we spoke on the podcast and she said when somebody asks me for training all I hear is I would like your help and so so and from I would like your help you look to explore what it is that they are experiencing or the consequences of something that they've perceived that needs that needs their attention and you know and by by understanding that you're not then looking to fill a bucket with what what would you like in said solution, said training. Uh, I've also got some friends who might be able to contribute into that bucket. Much more towards let's talk about some specifics here. There's consequences of what you're seeing, and then be much more laser focused. Well, first of all, as you, as you uh, quite rightly said. Um, the benefit of doing this is you have a ground zero. You understand the problem as it stands today uh, in a way that's, that, that is observable. And then whatever you do as a result, and it's always useful to do as little as you possibly can in order to move the, uh, to move the needle so that you don't over-egg it, that, uh, that, you're, that you know uh, for sure from your perspective what you did that, uh, that had an impact. Yeah, I, I think that approach of just hearing how can I help is really valuable and Mm. you just ignore the word training it doesn't matter they just started the conversation that's all and as you say i mean you've they're under pressure as well to because i mean this again i think is one of my big bugbears that l and d often is is peripheral to an organization it's not really central to how the organization achieves it's not central to performance it's peripheral Mm. because it's training really even though we say l and d people hear training it's like a synonym. It yeah. shouldn't be, but that's what people hear. And they think of training as kind of being a little bit of a treat, a bit of an extra, mm. you know, I'll go on and you can have a training day as if it was some kind of benefit. Um, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it is a benefit, but I mean, as if it were a benefit in the sense of a day off almost, mm. you know, or, a, or possibly something that's wrapped around travel. So mm. I think when training sits at the edges like that, and it's not seen as core central to how the organization succeeds. That's when you get these kind mm. of things. So could you just do some training? I've just got to be seen to be ticking this box. I've got to be seen mm. to be offering something. And that's, that's where I get a little frustrated. And mm. I think if you can, we shouldn't be giving into those. And I know sometimes you have to, because you've got to establish the relationship and you've got to establish your own credibility yeah. to some extent. So I know it's not quite as simple as just saying no. But if you can get into the into the middle of the organization, and it's hard because usually we're working mm. in the in the softer skills, the behavioral skills. You know, yeah. if you're going back to my time in an airline, the department that did how to put wings on planes and how to fix an engine and how to fly a plane, they were very much attached to that expertise, to that professional body, the engineering training, the pilot training, the even cabin crew training. They were attached mm. to the cabin crew, the pilot bit of the company. There wasn't a separate discrete training team. Mm. No, sorry. There wasn't a training team that sat apart from them. They were very much tied in because they were seen as integral to the organization. They're integral to how that, that how to pilot succeeded was the pilot's mm. support and learning systems sewn into it all. And then third floor, the end of the building was the L&D team who ran management training now and again. And you see the difference. It's just yeah. not sewn into the same fabric. And I think that's so that's partly our own fault. Because I think L and D evolved out of the concept of education being from the sort of university idea, mm -hmm. where you're a little bit detached, a little bit theoretical, out of context, in a separate room, teacher on stage, you know, passive students in the audience. That's how we used to teach. That was school. That's what we came out of. Mm. We all we all saw that as education. And you come into the organization and you've got training done really well for pilots, engineers, cabin crew, whatever, in the medical profession, these kind of things where it's massively attached to how you do the job. Mm. And then you've got us still slaving away in a, a classroom doing this sort of generic out-of-context stuff. I mean, little mm. wonder we end up on the periphery. Yeah, And I think that's key is how can you get in the middle? How can you get tied into the whole thing, into that central bit of the fabric? You've, uh, you've, you've touched on a, an interesting point there because in, in a couple of the examples that you gave, say in um, the medical profession uh, and in uh, uh, pilot training, the technology is used in simulations where you can pretty much replicate the experience that a pilot or say a surgeon um, or will experience um, in real life um, but but in uh, in softer skills um, you know my, my own personal experience of when I was pushing e-learning in any organization that I worked in was largely of resistance of apathy and you know when I looked at some of the stuff we were looking to push there was there was good reason as well it's because a lot of it was was facile it was irrelevant it was uh it was too long it wasn't focused on anyone's job in the organization and and, and look my i'd love to talk with you about uh, about your technology journey and because uh, <laughs> uh having 
entered uh, learning and development in uh, in the very late uh, 90s my introduction to learning tech was uh, coloring ac coloring in acetates for overhead projectors uh, <laughs> that's Same as uh, mine, yeah, yeah. you know we've yeah, we've come a long way since. So I just wonder what, what your, your technology journey uh, has been uh, in learning and development to this well, point. Well, it sounds like I, I, mine was early 90s. So uh, when I mm. first started in, the, I'd say it was teaching really more than that. And, and really it was just a whiteboard, you know, and, we had, and some videos that we, mm. that was it. That was your technology, videos and a whiteboard. I thought whiteboards were cool because I'd grown up with blackboards yeah. at school. So for me, the idea of a whiteboard <laughs> was kind of some technological leap forward. Um, mm. So yeah, pretty pretty low tech at the beginning. Uh, I've always been fairly computer literate. I was mm -hmm. lucky, I suppose. My my dad was really into computers, so he never really they never I never had any fear of them, and I engaged with computers quite early. Although I'm not a, in any way a computer nerd, despite appearances. Mm. So, but. Um, I don't think I ever really believed in technology as being a big part of most of the training that I did. I'll use the word training hmm. because I never, I've never been convinced of e-learning being hmm. a silver bullet. And I, I, I remain skeptical, although I agree it's got much, much better. Hmm. Um, so most of the, my own experience has been still quite low tech. So although of hmm. course a lot of learning is now virtual, that's all you're using. You're just just like this Zoom call. You're just using a, a Teams or a Zoom or something. So my own, my own experience has been a bit light in that department. I've had some great conversations with people who are taking it much further in terms of using simulations, mm. using virtual coaches, using yeah. um, uh, uh, um, you know apps that you can go on certain missions in order to make the learning more experiential. Mm. loads of people doing stuff much better than i am that's certainly not an area i've exploited that much so sorry to be give you a a long waffly answer in which i told you i don't know <laughs> <laughs> no that's all right look john went when i was at disney and, uh, and it you know yeah. <laughs> i don't write on it with a permanent pen i feel pretty pleased with myself to be honest yeah <laughs> you've had a yeah. successful day it's technology day. wise yeah haven't, haven't yeah. ruined anything <laughs> but look, I, I, um, when when I was at Disney, and this was largely because we were hamstrung, we had a large clunky LMS filled full of generic content that we couldn't get people to use unless it was mandatory. Um, no one and can get so them to everything. Use an LMS. No, no. Um, but uh, but um, but when it really mattered, and we had to actually upskill or reskill people, we needed to use mini accelerated apprenticeships, leaning on local subject matter experts, mentoring, buddying, uh, and then um, job redesign, and then the actual levers so that people did the new job differently or the old job differently. Um, the we we really couldn't lean on um, uh, on technology in that respect. But I do think that uh, that we're seeing um, a huge opportunity with. Uh, with chat gpt now and uh and generative ai in order to plug some of the gaps that learning and development could never have got to um i think you know a lot of our conversation has come when we were talking about the training needs analysis which of course is simply a resource allocation exercise when things are costly or when you we're looking after large swathes of people or we're looking to plug a gap in our curriculum we can only really do that top down by aggregating common needs and stand and coming back down with standardized content or programs but the opportunity with generative ai is to come up 
uh, bottom up and solve the problems that people are experiencing in their day to day and guide and support them to do more of the right stuff, which which of course is uh, is uh, is taking um, what is very much emerging technology to uh, to the nth degree. But I'd love you to put I'd love to put your uh, fortune teller hat on um, and uh, and tell me what you think that the mid to long term future of L and D or learning and development leadership is say the next uh, five years or so. What do you think? Well, just on if I just go back on what you were just saying then, just just for a second, because mm. I think things like uh, you mentioned about flight simulators and medical simulators and stuff. Mm. And I think when you can codify something as you can in those fields, then obviously simulation has been a big part of that for a long, long time. And yeah. you can, when you're into kind of more behavioral skills, which is where I would mainly focus, that becomes a bit more difficult. Whereas I think mm. AI potentially is opening the door to that in the way that we yeah. couldn't before because everything before had to be on a flow chart expressible on the flow chart however mm. huge and complex whereas the the what AI may open up is something completely different which gives us mm. a chance to engage with it at that more behavioral level i'm yeah. not sure how much we might need to do that because most of the skills that we talk about and the knowledge we talk about isn't actually that difficult. Mm. The The gap in most cases is not that people don't know how to manage their time or manage a, another person or have a difficult conversation or, you know, uh, give a, a speech in public or whatever. It's not necessarily a knowledge gap, although that might be a factor. In some cases, mm. it's not even that much of a skills gap because there isn't a lot of skill in having a conversation with somebody often. Mm. There are some nuances, of course there are, but it's not compared to flying a plane. It's not yeah. what it is. It's about confidence. It's about habit. It's about those kind of things, judgment about when to use things. Mm. And those are things where I think AI might really be able to help by presenting mm. so many different kind of scenarios, situations, etc., that allow us to really think through, reflect, discuss what are good responses that will help build those confidence in our judgment, help build our judgment, help mm. build our habits. So I think there's a space for AI there. And mm. I'm not answering your question, I know. I'm answering a previous question that you didn't actually ask, <laughs> but it occurred to me whilst you were talking about that. Yeah. So so the next few years of uh, L&D leadership? Mm. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, I think that I, I suppose the biggest challenge I don't know how to phrase this because I'm, I'm thinking about 10 different things at the same time. I'm trying to order a way of saying that in a way that's reasonably <laughs> articulate. But I think partly you've got you've got a customer base. And I work with internal customers, mm. but I think even if you work with external customers, the customers have an expectation. They know what they want and they don't really want somebody telling them that they don't want that. So I think there's the ongoing mm. education of our customer base so that they know better what they want or they know mm. they know better what they need, I should say rather than what they want. So I think mm -hmm. there is still that, that's a big part of L&D leadership, is using your credibility yeah. as a leader, as a more senior colleague, to be really helping other leaders that aren't in L&D to understand when, how learning can make a difference and how, you know, the, the old fashioned isolated training course isn't the solution. And what mm. they need to be doing as leaders to be modeling that, to be modeling learning cultures, to be all of that kind of stuff that they don't necessarily think mm. about or not doesn't mean they don't care, but they're not thinking about it like we are. So I think there's a real role as a leader 
a responsibility as a leader, I should say, to be educating our other senior colleagues in what they can do and how they can be mm. better customers in a sense so that we yeah. can have a chance of landing better solutions with them. So I think that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Did you want to say anything on that first? Because you look like you... you no, 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 I, no. I just no. I'm just uh, very attentive because I completely agree with you. I think that uh, I, I think that uh, that that's something that we learn on our journey as learning and development leaders. That it becomes more and more important because when we're new on our journey and before we've developed currency in our organisations, it feels like the right thing to do to say yes. Um, when would you like it uh, as a as a response to a training need? But but in helping to. Um, uh, in, in helping and guiding our stakeholders to get to the nub of the reason that they're talking to us in the first place, I think is is critical. And that, that helps us to do meaningful work and uh, and also not to waste money. But, but what about then if they haven't really got a problem? Mm. They're coming to us because they know they're supposed to provide some training. So with, with best intentions, they're coming mm. to you to provide some training but they haven't really got a problem. They're fine. They're basically buzzing along perfectly reasonably, as most organizations yeah. are. Now what are you going to do? John, I'm the podcast host on this one. Yeah, I know, um, but... You, know. <laughs> <laughs> you switch wrong. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I was only joking. I was only joking. No, you're absolutely right. And I had a, a, an early conversation on the podcast with Tracy Waters at Sky, who um, was running a much more performance-oriented, uh, learning in the flow of work, guiding and supporting people when they actually needed the help. Um, and um, she ran far less training courses and eliminated e-learning for, for anything that wasn't... Um, uh, compliance but people came to her and said you know they, they, we still want training and there were her four R's and I'm not I mean, this is going to be a real challenge because I usually only remember three uh, rather than four but there was relationships recuperation uh, there was reward and there was another one uh, but I, that I can't remember um, but they had to then reinstate some training because it ticked those boxes. And without those, people then felt aggrieved that they, they were having something taken away. So the, so the important part of it is that, uh, that, that I've learned through the conversations I've had on this podcast and from my own practice is by all means, lead with lighter solutions that address specific problems. But if you're thinking of taking away everything else, then you're probably going to have problems. You're probably going to have a revolt on your hands. So it's almost as if you need to apply towards the stuff that you don't think is going to um, give you any return on the investment. Spend as little time and budget as you possibly can to keep those lights on or don't frame them as training at all you know they are there's, there's nothing wrong with with helping people feel good and if people feel aggrieved because something's being taken away then learning and development could be doing damage or doing some harm so it's almost as if we need to do a little bit of what's expected but don't put our reputation on the line in order to do that i mean how does that land with you and what you do john yeah i mean i recognize a lot of that i think what i was saying is if if people don't we, we there is a presumption in some of what we're saying, mm. that people come into you with X and you're saying, well, actually, let's dig deeper. What is the real problem? And they mm. go, well, there isn't one. I just want them, just want a bit of training. And that's often the case because yeah. they are reasonably functional and there isn't an obvious yeah. problem. There may be isolated things here and there, but there isn't. So what what do you do? And, uh, mm. and I think, in, in, in my opinion, that's where it's a presumption to assume there's a problem we need to solve. And mm. I, sometimes that's true. 
and that simplifies things. Often that isn't mm -hmm. the case. And I think that's where we need to be looking more broadly about how could we help going back to that point? How could we enhance this? Yeah. Could we be putting together a, a development journey for people that make them feel so valued that they get on this program and it's an investment mm. in them. It's not an investment in their role. It's not role specific, how to do that thing a bit better. It's an investment mm. in them and their careers in their futures, which then is a motivating factor. It's a rewarding factor. It makes them more likely to, maybe it makes them more likely to stick around. Maybe it makes them more likely to leave. I don't know. One of my mm. leadership programs that I work on, we always chalk it up as a great success factor every time somebody leaves the organization. And because mm. it's it, it's a positive, it's it's a assuming they leave for good reason, <laughs> not if they get fired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if they leave for like, <laughs> just never happened. By the way, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> but I think if you can do it something like that, so you're looking at it from a totally different mm. angle. You're not saying yeah. what training can I do to tick a box to keep the keep people happy. You're actually saying, mm. okay, I've got to do a bit of training. I've got to I've got to I've got to have a tangible offer to keep people happy. Okay. Let's yeah. let's think what what's the most value I could add with that, and that might be something like investing in careers in something of that nature. Mm. Again, still haven't properly answered your question. I started <laughs> answering it with the first thing, which is about the role of the senior leader really is to help uh, educate other mm -hmm. senior leaders. So I think that's a big part of what we have to do as mm. L and D leaders. I think another part is keep pushing towards learning being. Uh, not discrete products, but uh, I'm, I'm going to use hurried buzzwords, but I do actually think they're quite useful. But I do like phrases like learning journey. I know it's a bit overused, yeah. but I do like it because I think it makes a point. And mm. a learning learning journeys of um, in-context experiences, which help people acquire knowledge, skills, help them reflect, help them take mm. time with things in order to to uh, to improve, so I think pushing for better standards of learning programs. I think pushing for better properly researched content, because you do tend to get resistance from designers and providers that they will do what they've always done. So you mm. might have people trotting out. You know, we mentioned learning styles. You might have people trotting out. You know, Mahabrian communication thing, yeah. or you know, let's do MBTI again or whatever it might be. And I'm not I'm not a massively against MBTI. I'm not saying that. I know some people are. Mm. But I think as we have a responsibility as leaders to be saying, is that properly researched, robust stuff that we're sharing? Is it the latest thinking? Is it the most useful yeah. for the context rather than just the thing off the shelf that you know and you're familiar with, therefore it's easy to deliver? So I think mm. there's something around setting the standards that haven't really gelled in the center of our industry as much as they could have done that, in my view. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I think there is a responsibility around the technology that you've also mentioned. But mm. we don't have to be first adopters, most of us. Most of mm. us have the luxury. It's a people business. That mm. We don't need to be putting everything uh, on e-learning, LMS, siri whatever ai thing of me whatever's mm. we don't have to do that at the fastest possible pace mm. it's in most of our cases it's teaching people how to manage better how to be better leaders how to be more influential how to have a better impact it's stuff like that it's all very interpersonal it's human it's behavioral mm. we can 
wait for things to be more or less proven and then work out how we can get the most value out of it and not be chasing shiny objects or be worried about being at the vanguard. We don't have to be. So I think there's an element of engaging, but not, but not, um, not being bewitched by the beauty of a new shiny latest, this will solve all your problems solution. Is that yeah, right? I completely agree. I think that yeah, yeah. I think that there's uh, there's there's a lot to be said for understanding what the problems are that you're trying to solve, or what it is that uh, that you're in your organisation to do, and then using smart technology to to help you with that. Uh, but far too many decisions are made to to blow the budget on the next big thing that's going to solve all those problems before you've defined them. And uh, I think... uh, and I can tell you, twenty twenty five years in learning and development yeah. <laughs> tells me that that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, also, I mean, there's also the point about kind of inclusion and inclusion mm. we, most of us are working in, in more and more diverse environments more and more diverse colleagues more and more ways of understanding what we mean by diversity and mm. again to be as inclusive as possible with your learning which doesn't mean make everything has to be perfect for every single possible person mm. but um things like some technological solutions aren't that are not are not suitable for everybody but other people, mm. they're hugely enabling. So again, I think it's yeah. it's about having that open mind, but also having that slightly sceptical mind with these things. Mm. Yeah, being measured in that. Uh, uh, so John, as we look to uh, to wrap up our conversation, um, uh, I'd love I'd love for you to tell my audience a little bit about your podcast. Oh, yes, happy to do so. I have a podcast which is um, stupidly named Trainer Tools, which I, I thought at the time was a good name because I thought I was going to be talking with trainers about tools Mm -hmm. that you could use as a trainer in your delivery. And almost immediately that became clear that that wasn't what it was about at all. It was about conversations like this, where you talk to Mm -hmm. other L and D enthusiasts about specific things. So it's available on all the podcast platforms with the silly name trainer tools. And I think I've done about 90 episodes so far, which uh, they're slowing down as I get older and busier that I can't do as many as I used to. The next, the next one features uh, you. Well, the, oh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah look up that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, yes. Uh, my audience should look out for that, for that yeah. one. But you, I mean, you, yeah, you might've slowed down, but you've got uh, a wealth of, uh, uh, of great content there. Yeah. Thanks. So the next one features a fellow called David James, if anybody's interested in <laughs> 360 learning, where we'll repeat some of what we've just talked about. Brilliant, but I'll do uh, I'll do most of the talking on that one. Uh, but John, um, look, it's been uh, it's been an absolute uh, uh, honour to talk to you twice, uh, both on your podcast and mine. And so, it's all left for uh, for me to say is thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. A noisy market of vendors can often lead us to believing that L and D is one thing when really it's another. This is why I love speaking with those leading L&D functions because it's their focus and their priorities that provide insights into where we are as a profession and what's needed for us to advance. In John's case, he's both experienced and insightful and I took a great deal from what he shared to determine what's needed rather than what's new. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective of which I'm an active member Join me and hundreds of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn. Again, you'll find the links in the show notes. And goodbye for now.